Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring Liz Kendall. Uh, Liz, of course, stood against Jeremy Corbyn in that Labour leadership contest that feels like years ago now um, and had a very different result to, to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, well, completely different, obviously finished last and represented uh, the polar opposite to Jeremy Corbyn in Labour terms as well, was at the opposite end of the political spectrum and uh, in the end at the opposite end of the, uh, the league table, if you like, in terms of results. Um, but she is a, an exceptional politician and uh, someone who uh, defeat um, won't have put her off. And, uh, well, I won't ruin anything that, um, that comes out in this interview, but uh, the resilience of Liz Kendall, I think, is something that is uh, remarkably impressive. Um, so, see you on the other side. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. Uh, welcome along, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yay! Excellent. Welcome along, uh, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Oh, excellent. Well, lots of newcomers. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming. We have a superb guest in the second half, uh, and I'll throw the audience uh, open to questions towards the end of that. So, um, do think of questions you'd like to ask. Uh, it's been a fucking amazing month already in politics. <laughs> People excited about the EU referenda. OK, we'll do a quick straw poll. Who's definitely going to vote in it? Yay! OK, who will vote to remain in the EU? Yay! OK, who will vote to leave the EU? Yay! <laughs> One very proud man at the back. Excellent. Um, there may well be a few... Uh, and, and give me a cheer if, you, if you're unsure, undecided. Yay! OK, well, maybe after joining in with that vote, you will now be spurred to join in with the ultimate one. So hopefully I've given you a taste for democracy there. What, um, what way do you think... What will decide it for you, do you think? An analysis of the issues when, when they come out. An analysis of the issues when they come out? That's a real shame, because I thought you were going to say scaremongering and homophobia. I mean, that's, that's sort of what I'm looking forward to uh, from this campaign. Um, I mean, already... Uh, I, watched, I don't know if anyone else watched the Europe debate in full the other week. Uh, Probably not even the MPs who are here tonight, actually, but I did. And uh, there was a phenomenal bit in it where Corbyn got heckled. Uh, I don't know if anyone saw this, but, but there was such a good one in the Europe debate on Monday. He gets someone, Cameron said his bit, and he goes, somebody oh, goes, um, I was in Brussels as well, Mr. Speaker, meeting uh, with, with, with European leaders. And one of the questions they were asking me was, and this story at the back goes, Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> You see Andy Burnham trying so hard not to laugh. It looks like he shit himself. <laughs> and then, what's really funny is Corbyn can't take it. He goes, no, 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 that's not what they asked me. That's not me. <laughs> I think anyone was like seriously suggesting the European leaders. There was one today. And you can't watch Promises Question Time today. Did anyone see it? Incredible. There's a bit in it where Corbyn actually starts goading uh, Cameron about the fact that his mum had signed an anti-cuts petition. He says, oh, well, the leader of the Oxfordshire Against Cuts campaign be, you know, saying what she said last time. And Cameron gets up and goes, no, no look, uh, the, the, the Honourable Member, frankly, has a, an awful record in, in this area. And Labour MPs are going, ask your mum, ask your mum. <laughs> and he goes, ask my mum, I'll tell you what she would say if I asked her, put on a tie, buy a decent suit and sing the national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny, but he said it so quickly that she's definitely actually said that before. <laughs> Words echoing from his childhood. Oh, David, do your tie-up, buy a suit and sing the national anthem. I mean, it's a good job it was that example, wasn't it? If he was thinking on his feet, I mean, some of the things that mothers have said to young boys in the past, 
Ask my mother for advice. I'll tell you what she'd say to me. She'd say, put that magazine down, you'll go blind and sing the national anthem. <laughs> Incredible, but... Uh... But the, the EU renegotiations been the big thing, hasn't it? Uh, negotiating with Donald Tusk, I thought, was quite uh, interesting. Donald Tusk... For a lot of people don't know who Donald Tusk is. Um, he's the former Prime Minister of Poland. I think he's an interesting guy to be, to be dealing with because he got his vote as, as President from Cameron by promising to be a moderniser. Cameron's obviously called it in and said, well, I need a deal. And you just think, that is the mother of all favours being called in. Oh, can you look after the kids on Friday night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you don't mind just nipping to Wix for us and picking up a bit of two-by-four, dear? No, 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 not a problem. You know, could you stop in-work benefits for migrants for up to four years? <laughs> sure, I'll do it at the weekend. Uh, but Tusk himself, obviously, is, is a shiny... A lot of countries have made uh, great um, benefits from the principle of free movement. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who grew up in this country and moved to Brussels uh, to leave the EU. But you do think, you know, it's really come to something when even the Prime Minister of Poland has fucked off to work abroad. <laughs> but fair play to him. Um, the letter that Cameron wrote... I don't know if anyone read uh, the, the initial letter that Cameron uh, wrote in outlining Britain's position. I've got it here. Um, it's a lovely letter on uh, headed notepaper. Now... The thing is with these things is that they're often written in, in political language. So I thought I would go through it and just, just decode some of the stuff that Cameron was after because I think some of the coverage actually hasn't focused on the detail uh, of what Cameron wants. And this is genuinely... I mean, it doesn't take a, 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 a genius to figure out what these are for. And they were in what they called four baskets. And they were economic governance, competitiveness, uh, sovereignty and immigration. Uh, had to be baskets because the trolleys only took euros. <laughs> and... <laughs> Very much, it is actually, you know, the basket analogy works because often when you do bring stuff back from Europe, it smells funny and you have a problem getting people to swallow it. OK? <laughs> fourth, fourth worst joke. To... <laughs> there are bits in it, there are economic principles he wants the, the EU to abide by. And it's just, it's just really funny thinking, I know what he's getting at here. So the first one is, the EU, this is a principle he wants enshrined. The EU has more than one currency. In other words, we're keeping the pound, mate. Deal with it. This one here, I love this one. <laughs> Taxpayers in non-euro countries should never be financi financially liable for operations to support the eurozone as a currency. In other words, you can stick your bailout up your ass. <laughs> the, I love this bit. This is my favourite bit. Because there's a, there's a real cheek to this. There's a genuine cheek where the, I think this is political needle. He's put this line in to Donald Tusk. Very substantial flows of population have, of course, had a significant impact on a number of member states many of whose highly qualified citizens have departed en masse to a Polish bloke. <laughs> he might as well have put his name on the end of it. Many of his highly qualified citizens have departed en masse, Donald. <laughs> effectively the point he was making. But what he does, Cameron, is he's very good at selling nothing. So come back and make out that this is this great achievement when clearly it isn't. And he does this thing, straw man arguments, really. He creates a false argument and pretends he's overcome it. And I saw him, after he'd got his deal, going, look, people said you'd never get a deal on immigration, and we've got it. You know, people said you'd never get a deal on sovereignty, and, and we've come back with it. Like, no-one said you wouldn't get any deal. <laughs> people said you'd get a little bit and you'd oversell it, and that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> that, is, that is completely different. It's just absolutely... basically the sort of David Brent of politics. <laughs> Yeah, people thought I couldn't get a deal on immigration, but I did. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, you are amazing. Sorry, sorry. 
You know why? Bollocks! <laughs> and what I like about myself, he's got such a reasonable voice, David Cameron, such a reasonable voice that he manages to make things that actually are, depending on your opinion, quite distasteful, sound just very, actually, quite relaxing, the idea that we'll all be on the dole for ten years. Oh, sounds all right, yeah. If you think of stopping in-work benefits for migrants for up to four years, whether that's a good idea or not, if you think of the consequences of it, and he makes it just sound like, look, we've got a deal on, on welfare, and I think that's something we can live with. It just makes it sound like nothing's going on. If he actually explained the consequence of that, it would, you, know, you could still make it sound reasonable, I think. But all we're saying is for people who come here and work, we'll deny them every benefit for four years. They'll be forced to work in the black economy, stuffing heroin up their arseholes until it explodes and they die face down in the strawberry field in Lincolnshire. I, I think most reasonable people would agree with that. <laughs> oh, got a point, actually, yeah. Very reasonable. Um, the referendum date, we now know, is uh, June the 23rd, uh, which was controversial. The SNP didn't want it to be in June, because uh, they're still fighting the last one. And they... <laughs> they're not ready to move on to the next one yet. But uh, what I found quite interesting was there were a few people, and apparently the, all the leaders of the devolved assembly said, oh, no, we can't have it in June, because people will get confused. I mean, that is so... <laughs> what they're saying is none of us have, would know the difference between electing, say, a mayor of London and deciding whether Britain should stay in the EU. <laughs> I said people are going to leave the ballot box going, I think I just voted for Sadiq Khan to leave the EU. <laughs> Which may be not an ignoble aim, some would say. <laughs> Your beefy clap from... <laughs> but it's a bit in his letter as well that he puts, and this is just classic Cameron, because it sounds so naff. He's put, if we can, I'm ready to campaign with all my heart and soul to keep Britain inside the EU. <laughs> Don't, mate. Whenever he campaigns with all his heart and soul, he fucks it up. He forgot what football team he supported. Don't let him loose with his heart and soul on this campaign. He would definitely slip up at some point. And I always said to people, if I could come back with a deal, and if that, was deal, if that deal was put in front of me, of course I'd leave the European Union. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, I meant leave. I had a brain fade. I don't know. Rubbish. Andrew Marr didn't pull any punches, did he? You interviewed him on Sunday. Let me sorry. I mean, to be fair to um, Cameron, he's been up late negotiating. Andrew Marr opens up by going, Prime Minister, you must be knackered. <laughs> you can't start an interview with a politician like that. All right, mate, you look like shit. <laughs> been up all night shagging, have you? It's just an awful way to start an interview. And you do get a sense with Cameron that actually he's quite enjoyed it. And it makes him look good, and it's sort of strutting the European stage, meeting with leaders, coming back late into the night. And you just think, it's kind of his Glastonbury, isn't it? <laughs> sort of a long week, staying up all night, putting off eating, and then staying up till half five talking mad shit to some foreign bloke about politics. <laughs> <laughs> or some such. Corbyn was out there as well, of course. He was out there in Brussels. And I do hope, because obviously, I don't know how much other people take notice of our democracy. You know, probably as much as we take of theirs, and that's very little. I do hope that at some point, some Brussels bureaucrat bumped into Jeremy Corbyn and thought, how long have these negotiations been? The Prime Minister looks absolutely fucked. <laughs> They're right, it does age you, doesn't it? Christ. Looks exhausted. Um, but what's interesting now, mostly with the European debate, is the... Is the, is the um, Division that it opens up, mainly in the Tory party. And uh, one Tory MP, Nicholas Soames, uh, is not going down without a fight. And uh, 
He's a man. If you don't know Soames, he, uh, he was the guy whose wife said having sex with him was like having a wardrobe fall on you with the key still in. <laughs> <laughs> Which I took as a compliment. Um, <laughs> but he's been tweeting. I think it's amazing. You've seen his, he's Winston Churchill's grandson as well, if you don't know Soames. So let's just see if that famous Churchillian wit... Uh, is carried in the bloodstream. Because he is, if you haven't seen him, he's a big fella, and he's a proper, looks a proper old pompous Tory bastard. Every inch the full-on old-school Tory, right? But he's tweeting, which is quite... Anyway, this was the first tweet that caught my attention. I must say, to be told I had a vote in a referendum by John Redwood in an email to colleagues marks a new low in my life in the house. Hashtag bugger off. <laughs> Hashtag... <laughs> This one's brilliant. Grassroots Outlaunch look like Saga on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This one, this two days ago, this. Farage and Galloway, a bigger pair of rotters it would be hard to find. <laughs> Hashtag deserve each other. <laughs> I was hoping he'd use a little emoji of that little pile of shit. <laughs> Hashtag... I mean, that as well, rotters. How old... That's like something from the Beano. <laughs> Oh, Nigel, stop being so beastly. Walter's in tears. <laughs> it's the fact that he's on Twitter. So I clicked on the hashtag, um, deserve each other, because that, like, bugger off might not trend. Deserve each other. There's obviously a lot of people would use that. If you click on the hashtag, deserve each other, it's predominantly teenage girls talking about members of One Direction they fancy or their boyfriends. And then his tweet's in the middle of this... <laughs> So it's like, oh, I miss my bae so much. She's such a bae. Hashtag deserve each other. Like, oh, thinking of boo-boo with his sweet lips. Hashtag deserve each other. Farage and Galloway are a pair of rotters. Hashtag deserve each other. Just waiting for some teenage girl to sort of click on it and reply. Are they cheating on you, babes? <laughs> thinking of you, huh? So funny watching it. Boris, of course. Boris and Michael Gove, the two big beasts that have come out on the side of Vote Leave. I don't know if you saw the picture on the front of the Mail on Sunday. Sort of grainy picture of Boris leaving Michael Gove's house. Um, which was kind of a relief, really, because usually when there's a photo of Boris leaving someone's house like that, he's, he's just shagged their wife. <laughs> <laughs> I just think we should all be grateful, you know, that Boris has done the noble thing and sort of answered the call um, and stepped up to the plate and done selflessly what is in the very best interests of Boris. And I think... <laughs> I think we should all respect that. Um, some of the campaigning uh, materials are, are quite interesting. Vote Leave uh, have done some Eurosceptic condoms. Um, and on the condom wrapper it says, it's riskier to stay in. <laughs> but then you think, isn't that the job of a condom? What he's saying is, I can't trust your condoms. Surely that would reduce the... I mean, if, if anything, a condom is the root... I mean, the initial, the ultimate stop on migration, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, <laughs> it's the first initial barrier to more people. <laughs> That's all roundabout way. But you just think, what... Like, I would not trust those condoms, because even given by the way that their campaign is run, I mean, they're, they're, the condoms, I imagine, are like their, their campaign, sort of susceptible to splits... <laughs> yeah. Um, my second favourite report of the month was the Lib Dem report into why they lost the election. 
Has anyone read this? I hope you haven't. Um, this, I've... Have you read it? Well, who said that? Where are you? I'm up here. Is that Tim Farron? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, have you read it? A bit. Did you like it? No. <laughs> are you a supporter of the Lib Dems? Yes. <laughs> what was your least favourite bit? All of it. <laughs> are you still a Lib Dem supporter? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. We found him! <laughs> um, were you a fan of Nick Clegg? He was all right. <laughs> Cody. Lost it at the end of it. You what? Lost it at the end of it. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, according to this, he sort of lost in 2010, and it got, it got worse from there. Um, Labour's report. Um, if you were here last month, we sort of went through Labour's report, and if you weren't, you're free to do it yourself, but why would you? Um, <laughs> Labour's report can be summed up as, Ed was great, the Daily Mail ruined it for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Lib Dems, to be fair to the Lib Dems, they fucking hate Nick Clegg. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is is a 21-page report that might as well just say, Nick is a prick. (laughs) He ruined it all and he wouldn't listen. Um, There are some bits, (laughs) what I like in it, I mean... They're not renowned for keeping promises. And, and the first one that should ring alarm bells is se- sentence two. The purpose of this report is not to apportion blame. It fucking is. <laughs> and boy. Right, they start off with a sort of slightly Ed Miliband argument, which is this. I mean, they obviously want the public to read this, so this is a brave start. Weak public understanding of our party and policies meant that our move into government was not well understood. It was the public's fault. 60 million thick bastards. Sadly, we're given a vote. I love this. And then, immediately, like, there is no... This is such an honest report, it makes me almost respect Lib Dems. That's how good it is, right? <laughs> By late 2010, factors combined to lead a daily reality of, for the party of public rejection, falling internal morale, and I love this phrase and consistent electoral destruction. <laughs> oh. 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 No. oh, we were fighting by-elections, but as a third party and a party government, it was always going to be tricky. We were fucked. <laughs> oh, this is so good. I've highlighted so much of it. Oh, now, this, this is fascinating. For those of us that have read the coalition agreement, we, we recognise this passage. But they, they, part of this report is incensed about tuition fees and they think Clegg was wrong to vote with them. And, of course, Clegg's always said, well, we're in coalition, what we're expected to do, you know, you've got to give and take. They print, in a Lib Dem report, the line in the coalition that lets Clegg off. So they put this, the carefully negotiated coalition agreement actually says, if the response of the government to Lord Brown's report is one that the Liberal Democrats cannot accept, then arrangements will be made to allow Lib Dem MPs to abstain in any vote. That's fucking incredible, isn't it? They, they didn't have to vote with it. And the Lib Dems are the ones telling us, going, you know who's fucking lying for five years? <laughs> and then they say, it is almost incomprehensible that six months on, the Liberal Democrats ended up voting for it. 27 members voting in favour for a tripling of fees, a package negotiated by one of our own secretaries of state. <laughs> <laughs> Vince. Oh, it's amazing. Now, the Lib Dems like to sort of say that they're nice people, don't they? That's part of the thing. Oh, we're just nice and honest. 
it is abundantly clear from this report, not only that that's not the case, but that they fucking hate each other. <laughs> there were obviously fights, because there are parts of this. These are, these are recommendations for the future. Some of the most problematic staff came with overzealous party committee members taking out their frustration on staff members. One of the recommendations is a code of conduct should be drawn up to prevent intimidation and bullying of party staff. <laughs> so people were just getting bullied. God knows who my Clegg or his people. You think, I would love to see a Lib Dem fight. <laughs> uh, Sebastian, you put the plastic in the card recycling. Aren't you? <laughs> Please. Yeah, well, you're the ones wearing sandals without socks, you losers. Yeah. <laughs> Selling Tim. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, that was fun, wasn't it? Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, a fantastic guest in the second half. Uh, someone that I mean, we have wonderful guests every month, but someone I've been especially looking forward to interviewing um, because of her role in seismic recent uh, political events. Um, so, if you've got, a... oh. <laughs> did you hear that? What was that? You started yawning already. <laughs> It was a proper good stretch, that, but it was the noise. <laughs> Crikey. A really big fan of Liz on the front row there, so... Uh, I'll sit on this side, Liz, uh, and mark him out of it. Uh, but if you've got a question you'd like to ask Liz Kendall, do ponder it in the uh, break. We're going to have a quick break now, so have a beer and do whatever else you'd like to do in the break. <laughs> Don't know why I made that sound rude, but... Uh, <laughs> want to do that sort of thing, just not on these grounds. Um, but have a... I've got all sort of... Oh, have a wonderful time. Uh, I'll be back in a bit. I'm Matt Ford. I'll see you in 20 minutes. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Um, I sort of pride myself... I've just... Sorry, I've got a bit of, bit of housework. Uh, I've got a guest coming in a minute. <laughs> I just don't want to be too far away. Uh, so there we are. Um, I pride myself on getting... To, uh, these are all people... I don't think there's ever been a guest here that I haven't been genuinely fascinated by. And I, I find all politicians fascinating. But there are certain people at certain times um, that experience a political moment in a far more dramatic way uh, to anyone else. And there are certain people who are prepared to stand up to the plate even when it looks as if, though, the fight is going to be very difficult. There are very few politicians, actually, and I think you saw it in the Labour leadership race, that had the guts to really stand up and say what they thought. My next guest is someone who absolutely did, and I just have so much respect uh, for her because I think she's one of the most talented politicians in the country. Please give a massive welcome to Liz Kendall. <laughs> welcome. So is that, is, that, is that a novelty to be sort of yeah. applauded Any on the whole? Yeah, applause or cheers is something I haven't experienced for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, was it... How hostile was it at times? It was it hostile. What, booze? Um, yeah. The first hustings in the leadership, I remember saying we need to talk about why we lost and people didn't trust us on the economy or on welfare... <laughs> And unless we're sorted on that, we won't get a look in. And there were, at best, gasps and sometimes boos, yes. Um, can it it's because of my mic has slipped off. I do apologise. Yeah, Is that any better? Oh, yeah. Excellent. There we, Excellent. There we go. So just for the benefit of the tape, how often were you... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, most hustings, as I said, there would be, um, at best, gasps when I talked about why people didn't trust us on the economy or welfare, and there were often uh, booze. Yes, there uh, were. 
And how do you do Because it's not as if, though, you're a particularly controversial politician. Um, what you're saying isn't really that provocative, really, within the mainstream. When you first go to that meeting, you think, oh, I might be needed to the next Labour Party. And at times you think, oh, I wonder if I'll have me a cabinet. And then, um... I, I never really got that far. <laughs> and then you turn up to that first one, you're getting booed. Is it, is it like sort of going out in the first round of the FA Cup? Do you think, oh, that's all over then? <laughs> I, I did know from the first hustle. I mean, I never thought that I would win. But I had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to say... Uh, because I felt we needed to face up to where we were and how we needed to change to win again. Um, But I did know from the first hustings, the response to me and all the other uh, candidates, and especially Jeremy, I thought, right, this is is possibly not going to go the right way. (laughs) Well, no, it went the left way by some margin. Um, (laughs) um, I mean, it was... We, when you get booed like that, do you just can you just take it, or do you think, why don't you shut up? But we have a, do you have a rise to it? No, I. It sounds strange, but I I was just so determined to say what I believed, and I didn't think that's the reason I put myself forward because I thought I didn't see anybody. I mean. I wanted to show how we needed to move on from the past five years. That's how we started, or I wanted to start the leadership campaign, but it very quickly became a a debate about whether it should be Jeremy or anybody else. But I still tried to stick with the things that I thought we needed to hear. And in the end, I realised that was my kind of role, and I thought, right, you're in it now. You're not going to change what you think. I was, there was no way I was going to change, because I thought, well, I wouldn't change my opinion, and I wouldn't say things just to get support, and clearly I didn't. So, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but I thought, you know, I'm not a quitter, so um, I thought, well, there's a platform here, I'm going to say it, and, um, and then I got that result. So. <laughs> <laughs> On the day of that result, I was watching it um, on telly. The first thing that struck me, actually, was with the four of you sat on that front row, how close the press were allowed yeah. to get to you and be right in your faces. And I thought, firstly, where are the press officers? And just secondly, how intimidating that must have been to have just that wall of cameras and knowing what a press pack can be like, just jostling in front of you when you were about to hear this result. Did that unnerve you at all? It's strange that you... I, I sort of don't remember the day apart from the pictures. Started drinking early. <laughs> oh, my God, I wish I had to. Um, or, you know, it, it wasn't... Once you were out there, I mean, we knew the result. Um, it was more... I mean, it was very interesting getting the result in, in that room beforehand. Um, but they were far too close, and it was... I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that before. So when you get the result, how, how many of you hear the result before? The... So you all go in with one person. Who did you take? Uh, Toby Perkins. Oh, yeah. Uh, Toby was my campaign manager. and um, But I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, it pretty much fitted what, what you know, my numbers had shown. So I wasn't surprised. It was a matter of just kind of getting through that. And actually, all I could think was getting through, coping with those cameras and... A, Actually, my dad. My dad had come along, and I didn't want him to be worried. It was quite useful having him there. Because he's my dad, and I love him. But it gave me someone else to, to think about, and that's always good when you're in that sort of situation. And, and so, did they give it you in the order 
of how you finished in the room to the guy. Okay. No, no, they go through the whole. All oh, right, crikey. Okay. The round thing. Well, some of them. Do. Yeah, <laughs> and some of them. Yeah. Some of them really like, yeah. So you get the deputy first, and then that. Oh crap! I mean, but you know, I knew, and it, you know, it was a. For the other candidates who thought about this and worked for it for a lot of their mm. lives and should have won or should have done better, I think it was possibly a bigger deal for them, yeah. whereas I kind of knew where I was going to stand or fall. <laughs> it was, what was the relationship like with the other candidates, Jim? Because it felt... I mean, some leadership contests can be very fractious. On the whole, actually, it wasn't too bad. I mean, you, you got called New Labour Taliban at one point. Well, that, <laughs> that was the best. That was the best uh, of all of the uh, comments I had. I mean, we can go into that later. But, um, no, it was pretty good. I mean, strangely enough, the person I kind of found it easiest to get on with was Jeremy. We, got, we had a good relationship during the campaign. He was very easy to talk to. Um, I suppose both of us were saying what we thought... We'd, neither of us had started out thinking that we were going to win, and obviously one of us did and one of us didn't. Um, but um, he was he was the easiest to get on with, actually. So what's he like in, behind closed doors? Um, he's, the, he's the same. He's very, I mean, he's very open to talking about things. He didn't talk about politics. Okay. You know, he'd be talking about you know, what was happening with his allotment or what he was going to do. Rain covers. Um, and, you know, he was just easy to chat to, really. But Andy and Yvette more kept themselves to themselves. So what was your relationship with Andy and Yvette like? Was that positive? Well, I've got more of a, you know, I've got a, a, quite a close relationship with um, Andy, you know, I'd been his deputy in the health team and, you know, we had quite a, a feisty relationship. We, you know, the thing with Andy is if you disagree with him, yeah. he will disagree to your face, you'll have the row out and then it's done. Yeah. Um, but Yvette. <laughs> 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 um, Closely with uh, and you know I'm not particularly I'm not particularly close to her, but also Andy had been very good to me per- personally mm. as well and um, supportive, and he'd also you know I'd felt really angry when uh, Jeremy Hunt had essentially sort of accused Andy of covering up deaths, and I felt uh, you know at midstaffs, and I was so bloody angry about that, and I felt that I wanted to go out and. You know, so we had got a, a good relationship, but during the leadership contest, it was a bit more keeping themselves to themselves. So do you talk to Jeremy now still? Do you have a sort of relationship with him? Still? I do, you know, I do whenever I see him, and it was not after his first PMQs, you know, his um, family had come to watch, and I went round, there's a little bit at the side of the chamber, and I went round to see, to see them, because, I mean, it was very, throughout the campaign, I mean, it, it, as an... Obviously, I was part of it, but I was also observing what was happening, and you could see this incredible thing happening to him, and he was enjoying it, but you could also see his family, his sons and his wife, thinking, God, what is happening here? And nobody thinks about that, and it's completely changed their lives, and they've ended up in the front line. And so, you know, and there was a point when he was poorly and he'd got a bad throat, and they were worried about him because he, you know, he was going through all of these hustings. And he was obviously speaking to a few more people than I was, and it was uh, going on his voice. So, you do see them 
in the context of their family, and often people don't think about what the impact is on them. That's interesting. That. I, I mean, he's, um, he's known as being a nice guy, Jeremy. He, he gets a difficult time at Primus' question time. Uh, what strikes me is that when Cameron gets up, whatever the Tories think of him, and obviously we know they're divided on him quite apart from Europe, there's a very sort of loud, yeah, 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 and then they go, Jeremy Corbyn, it's just like, it's not, it doesn't feel like, the, I mean, we know the Parliamentary Party isn't fully behind him, but uh, you're obviously quite fond of him. Do you sort of feel quite conflicted in that situation? Do you almost want to cheer him on, but also no, not you want can, to? You can completely disagree with a person's politics and think they're, you know, as I said throughout the leadership campaign, that I didn't think he was the right person to lead the party, but you can have good personal relationships with people. We are all on the same side. And, um, you know, he's... I think the important thing is that the people uh, around him treat others with dignity and respect too. And uh, he's been decent to me personally, but when you see um, people like, uh, you know, John... McDonald's saying that people who are part of Progress, and I'm very proud to be a member of Progress, saying they essentially have a, a Tory agenda. These are Labour Party people, and I think it's unacceptable to say that about them. And I am concerned about, you know, some of the people in, you know, Momentum who've campaigned against people who are Labour MPs, and I think that that's wrong. It does make for interesting times, though, doesn't it? With <laughs> because interesting, <laughs> interesting. But yeah. the tone in which some of his supporters and allies conduct themselves is not just outside of the norm of politics. It's completely unacceptable. Yeah, it is. Uh, and some of the stuff that John McDonnell has done with the Labour Representation Committee, the, the, the group that he fronts and is involved with. Um, I think it was Kate Godfrey, Labour's candidate in Telford, uh, made uh, incredible allegations about. Images of her that had been photoshopped, that were sexual, that were that were deeply offensive. Um, yep. That were all yep. these. Were, I'm not th- laughing. I'm just remembering a picture that someone tweeted at me once. <laughs> I, I, why did I even say that? Why did I even say that? I was sort of duty bound to ask, but I, 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 I didn't want to do it in the wrong way. What? what? Why did I even? <laughs> Take say that, that, take that picture. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. But, you know, I mean, being called... Uh, actually, my favourite insult was quite recently where I was called a pox whore. <laughs> nice bit of medieval insult. <laughs> um, I, but I liked it. I thought it was slightly, you know, slightly more interesting than, you know, bitch whore or evil Tory see you next Tuesday. I thought it was slightly more in- imaginative. So, um, you bet really crossed the line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you get abuse like that, I mean, I get the sense that you're quite philosophical and you're quite hardened to it now. I might be wrong. Initially, though, is it? Oh, no, because it's a load of bollocks. Isn't it? <laughs> so uh, I'm not. Um, no, and I just decided at one point to just start retweeting them because. And then they're such bloody cowards. They delete their tweets of the nasty things they've said. But the reason I did that was, you know, I'm uh, big enough and ugly enough to take care of myself. But I think a lot of people have started to feel intimidated into not saying or doing things that they believe because they're worried about the response they'll get on Twitter and social media or whatever. And, and 
we should never in this party be afraid of discussion and debate, of ideas and differences. You know, we can do that and we shouldn't uh, allow anybody who is a member of the Labour Party to treat or say things about other members of the Labour Party and they need to be called out about it. And I'm prepared to play my small role in doing that. It feels as if, though, this is going to be a, a sort of growing problem, really, given um, this momentum group that you talk about. It sort of feels like a new militant. What's interesting about them is they sort of couch themselves in very um, sort, of, sort of beige language, really. They say, oh, it's all about building communities, it's all about helping the Labour Party. They sort of shroud it in this respectability, and yet people's experience of them is that often they're passionate, to say the least, perhaps a little aggressive, um, and, as you say, have actively campaigned against the Labour Party in the past. I mean, have, have you had direct personal experience with groups like Momentum or any of these hard-left organisations? No, not in, not in my own constituency. And I would say there are you know, plenty of people who joined the party and Momentum who are passionate, who want to make a difference. Um, but there is this sort of core of people who I think are you know, more interested in you know, taking over the Labour Party than campaigning against the Tories to get a Labour government. And we have got to keep our eyes on who the real enemy are, and that's David Cameron and the Tories. No longer the Lib Dems, because there's not very many of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But obviously, um, what Corbyn and his allies might say is actually the people who aren't supporting the leadership, uh, elected with his significant mandate, and the people that are creating problems for the Labour Party now, aren't the hard left because they're on board, it's the Blairites, it's progress, it's people like Liz Kendall. What we, um, again, to give, you know, not to give too many uh, big apps to progress, but, you know, they're constantly out campaigning for Labour. You know, they did a big three seats in Scotland just recently. You know, we're all working together on the, you know, Labour in for Britain on the EU referendum campaign. We're actually, we're getting out, knocking on doors and doing the business. And that's, that's ultimately what we've got to keep on doing. We have nothing to fear from discussion and debate. And, you know, Jeremy has always stuck by what he's believed and made the case. And others will do the same. I hope we can come together as a party and focus our eyes on, on, you know, as I said, who the real enemy are and what we've got to do to win. And we have a massive issue in the next, you know, few months with the EU referendum campaign. And the biggest challenge for us in the Labour Party is to be relevant to that debate and Mm. go out and make the case for why we are stronger, more prosperous, safer as part of the European Union, and why we believe in collective action. And I think that's a huge opportunity for us, and I hope that we take it. It, The word relevant is is what really shines out from that. It it does feel, actually... I mean, if you think of the last two weeks on TV, politically, Labour just aren't in the... They're just not in people's heads. It's, It's all Cameron, it's all on the Tories. That brings its threat to the Tory party because of the splits that it highlights. But nevertheless, it creates the impression that the only game in town is the Tory party. I think it's inevitable at this early stage that a lot of the focus is going to be on uh, Cameron, uh, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, what's happening with that campaign. I have no doubt that Alan Johnson is going to be a strong voice leading the Labour in for Britain campaign. But we do, I mean, it seems to me that we have, you know, three big challenges as a party. Firstly, we've got to be relevant. We've got to be on the pitch in the big debates. And there is certainly on, on Europe 
uh, work to be done there. Secondly, we still have to go back to dealing with the fundamentals about why we lost, which I believe is about leadership and economic credibility, because if you don't have those, you can't do the third thing we need to do, which is set out an inspiring and credible programme that deals with the big challenges Britain's got. We've got to do those three things, and you know we've got a long way to go to achieve that. So I think most people in the country, Labour supporters or not, would totally agree. I would say, of course that's where Labour needs to be. Why don't you think the Labour Party thinks? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there are many Labour Party members who do believe that. And um, uh, there may be some here... <laughs> there may be some here tonight. But as I said, you know, I, many of the new people who've, who've joined the party, they're not all from the hard left. And I think for those of us on the kind of moderate wing of the party, we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves too and understand why we didn't win the leadership contest. And uh, I think it's partly because, you know, we were passionate about winning and getting into government and we must always be that way. But I think we kind of ceded principle to the left rather than saying, yes, we want to win, but we have principles too. And secondly, in rightly defending our record in government when we were attacked by the right and the left for what we'd done in government, we spent so much time trying to do that that we didn't pay enough attention to moving our own agenda onwards. And, you know, we cannot sound like, you know, I will always defend what we achieved in government but we cannot sound like a kind of 90s and noughties tribute band you know the world has moved on and if we are as I am a modernizer which means your principles stay the same but you change how you apply them and the world around you changes I think we were too slow in realizing how quickly things had moved on we didn't have an inspiring and credible enough agenda for the future, and that's not just a problem for the left in this country, you're seeing it in right across Europe and in the States too. So, in short, it was Ed Miliband's fault. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there was, you know, as, as someone Can who... Can I just say, on yeah. the, the most important thing that Ed got right was that even... <laughs> what was that heckle there? I didn't hear that. Um, was that even before the crash, most people weren't seeing the benefits of growth in the country. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was going to a few at the very top and most people weren't succeeding. And that insight was absolutely right. And I think that has to guide, you know, a new agenda that we come forward with. Have you seen him since the election much? No. <laughs> Sounds like it's through choice. <laughs> no, no I, I just haven't seen him in the Commons very much. It, it, it's just it, it, seeing how Labour. I mean, I think the night when Labour lost in uh, oh, in 2015. Does anybody remember where you were when the exit poll came through? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. yeah I, I was I was at News International. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tory. Tory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Having, a, having a smashing time. Um, <laughs> It was, uh, it was a shock because of the polling that we'd seen during the election. So, well, maybe it, it was a shock to some. And Lots, yeah. I was never convinced that Miliband was going to be Prime Minister, so it, it was um, perhaps less of a shock to you and I. Um, but nevertheless, it felt like it shocked the Labour Party. And it felt as if, after that, 
And I remember you going on and talking to Andrew Neil and effectively declaring, you know, the sort of temporary studios I they had. I literally decided just before, I thought, if he asks me, I'll say yes. That was how well thought out. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll say yes. But I, I thought, am. I thought it was a great interview and it, was, it felt as if, I think, the mood of the Labour Party was losing really hurts and we've lost twice now. You know what? Let's stop indulging this and get serious about winning. And I felt that there was, it was, there was almost a mood in the air and then half an hour later, uh, it felt as if though that had just dissipated. I, I watched your interview and thought, this is brilliant. Labour are finally going to get serious. And then it felt as if though the party just sort of went, actually, we're not that bothered about winning anymore. Well, but people were absolutely shocked and horrified that um, we had lost and that we weren't even in with a shout for a coalition. Mm. And... I, did, I, I wasn't, because of the amount of campaigning I'd done, and my, my sense was just people, you know, they, they weren't backing Ed, they didn't really believe we were up to it. And also just because of, sorry to be a nerd, but the data, I mean, I, was, I can remember talking to our organiser in Loughborough who said to me something like, oh, God, we've got 20,000 don't knows. And I said, Gail, they are not don't knows. You don't have 20, you don't have that many. They're not telling us because... And, you know, Loughborough, that was a marginal, has now got a stonking 10,000 Tory majority. But part of the issue, I, I, I feel, was... You know, for those of us who had thought that we wouldn't win, probably, you know, I, I'm sure I went out far too hard when people were still grieving and angry and upset <coughs> and someone kind of coming in and saying, this is, you wake up to this, was not perhaps the most, um, the best way of approaching it. Is it, I mean, the, the problem is, I actually think that it is the best way of approaching it, but it's almost as if, though, the Labour Party is full of such sensitive souls that instead of just being able to say the truth and say, look, it's obviously not working, why don't we sort it out? You have to go, oh, well, um, we can still recycle a lot and we can still help other people, but maybe we should, like, listen to business a bit, guys. Like, I, it, 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 it should go without saying that Labour stands for those things. I, I find it actually a, 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 a tragic... Assessment but of the see, psychology know, of Labour you, members. If you haven't, for I mean, I've, apologies if anyone's heard me say this before, but you know, politics is like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, you lose it. Okay, it goes very weak and flabby. All right, all right. And uh, <laughs> and we are, comedy, not, we, we have not made any difficult arguments. <laughs> on a whole range of areas for five, six, seven, eight years. And, um, you know, that then to try and do it is very hard. So Labour is, is, is intellectually morbidly obese. <laughs> no. <laughs> and needs to go on a, a psychological diet. Well, you know, it's tougher. I mean, you know, in peacetime, we've only... Well, even if... We've had three Labour, you know, elected three Labour Prime Ministers and only two in peacetime. In our whole history, you know, in repose, we are not a, you know, serious often about getting into government. And people forget, you know, clause one of the Labour Party is to have, you know, to make sure that you have an organisation 
in Parliament and in the country, a political party, is about being in Parliament, having as many people as possible. We are not just, yes, people want to be inspired by ideas and ideology, but our job is to be in government and change the world and put our principles into practice. But that is tough. I mean, stay in the obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose it depends how you you sort of see the situation. If if Labour's only elected two leaders in peacetime, uh, that means... Uh, Labour doesn't understand the public, or it means we need a war. <laughs> there you go. Evil Blair right again. <laughs> I mean, do you... <laughs> in terms of... <laughs> in terms of... Uh... In terms of Labour winning again. I mean, some people say the Labour Party doesn't have a divine right to exist. It, it may no, well... We don't. I don't, we don't. But do you think there is a genuine threat that Labour... Yes. I mean, if you look at how, um, uh, you know, the coalition of voters, if you you look back to um, Blair in in the 90s, we held on to our working class vote and we expanded out into middle class uh, support. Now uh, we've lost 20% 20 of our working class vote. We've got you know, we're struggling in those marginal seats. I mean, I was talking to Caroline Flint about this today when we were sitting in PMQs. Um, you know, an MP, Tory MP for Erosh, and you always go, God, mm. we used to have Erosh. And then I said, Liz we used Blackman. to have uh, F- Fal- uh, Falmouth and Camden, yeah. St Albans. I mean, the idea... And we're also losing support amongst BME voters. You know, a million BME voters voted Tory Last time, they doubled their vote. The, the world is changing and building that coalition. We don't have a God-given right to exist. And yet, it is our values that the country needs at this time. If you think our belief that it is only by working with other countries, you know, our belief in collective action, whether that's internationally or dealing with issues like climate change or terrorism or organised crime... In this country, our belief that it is only when every child has the best shot at life that the country as a whole succeeds, we need those values more than ever before. And that's why, you know, it would be a tra- such a tragedy if at precisely the time we're needed most that we vacate the pitch. But is, is there not a danger that you or maybe people who are on your wing of the party look at the Labour Party and think, I just cannot stay anymore? And you get a sort of STP situation. No, we're made of tougher stuff than you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm, it's different for me. It's I'm, our, it's our party, and um, uh, you know, there's never been any question. I mean, I've had a lot of people ask me this, but there's no question in my mind about about that. I mean, it, I, I left for a number of reasons, but I just, I just couldn't stand it anymore. I, I struggled under Miliband, and then in the end, I just thought. In fact, it was the day after Corbyn became leader. I just thought, I can't give money to this organisation. It was it's like cancelling a gym membership I hadn't used, really. <laughs> <laughs> a waste of money. I'm not even involved anymore. You know, it was, it, but it, equally, it hurt because I, I joined when I was 15. I've been a member for 17 or 18 years, most of my life. I'd campaigned for the Labour Party, well, and I got to. Um, point, about Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what if they hadn't stuck around in '83? Yeah. They were MPs. Yeah. They weren't on the circuit. 
But <laughs> very but um, you know things. Uh, well, uh, I would say to it, is anybody else here left the party? Yeah. Have you? When did you leave? Why, why did you leave? You're on the circuit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, you know, we, I, I think there was a poll out um, election data to the YouGov poll of party members, and I think, was it 9% left? I mean, loads more have joined, but I would just say to people, don't leave. It's your party, it's our party, and, um, you know, uh, we need everybody's views and we need everybody's contribution. I understand why people feel frustrated and um, have left, but I can only urge them to, you know, to come back. <laughs> come on in the water's lovely. <laughs> um, I am... Um, I wonder now, in terms of the future for Labour, because I think people, you would presume just through eventually having to listen to the wider public that Labour will get itself together. But if you look at the way Labour Party membership is constituted now and comprised, it has massively shifted to the left, and the members have more power in that regard to choose the leader than they ever have done. Even if, say, Corbyn is removed, how then does a moderate... Win. I mean, isn't this the question that the moderates now have to do what Momentum have done and just get hundreds of thousands of people to join the Labour Party? Well, we need more people to join the Labour Party, but as I said, you know, there are, there are, there are people who... What they felt was, from people like myself or Andy or Yvette, they didn't hear anything new or different or inspiring. They felt they were hearing the same old stuff as they'd heard for the last you know, however many, 15, 20 years, and they wanted something different. And I would say, whilst it is, we, we, you cannot succeed unless you understand what the public is saying to you. And I think we've got to get, I mean, too many, there's too often this view that somehow, oh, well, the public's just sick. They've been bamboozled by the Tories and the Tory media. And that is not true. Um, but neither is it just listening to the public and repeating things back. We have to have something different and inspiring that is credible. And I think people felt that the sort of moderate or progressive offer was just felt too small and tiny compared to the massive problems. If you look at the scale of inequality, how much wealth and power is held by a very, very few at the top. If you look at the massive challenge of climate change, what people felt was we were offering things that were too small and somehow we've got to have an answer that's between a big, unobtainable and I would argue often frankly wrong set of policies which is all about centralising and nationalising and central government control which I don't think is going to solve the problems of the world and on the other hand a kind of an agenda that people feel is too small to deal with the problems that they've got. And it is up to us, moderates and progressives, to come up with that inspiring but credible alternative. How much do you feel, because part of the reaction, that obviously, of Corbyn, that you sort of see it with Sanders a little bit in America, is a kind of, within politics, an anti-political vibe yeah. and a reaction against what people would you know, call it the spadocracy or whatever. I mean, do you sort of, given that you were a special advisor became an MP, do you feel that that counts against you and it, will that ever not be a, a, oh, a weight I mean, around your neck? 
I don't think that counted against me. What, I mean, what Jeremy looked and sounded different because he, you know, he, 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 he did, he was, he did look and sound different from what we'd had for the past yeah. twenty years. I think what the public is pissed off about is people who they think aren't speaking normally, who aren't honest about problems and it, it, it is true when you, it's one of the hardest the worst things in, in politics is you are part of a team you've got your strong beliefs but as you're part of a team you can't just go on and say exactly what you think about every issue because it's collective responsibility but people see through that straight absolutely see through it straight away it's why god you know i have to say that you know question time i find such an awful program because um you know one great relief of not being on the front bench is i think oh thank god i don't it's not my job to do that anymore <laughs> when you can't actually you wouldn't hello somebody opens the door you go evil tories evil tories <laughs> right i'm sorry i'm busy i've got the dinner on go away you wouldn't ever talk like that yeah. that's what you do in those pro you're sort of forced into that position yeah. so i think it's not so much about I mean, I'm very proud I was an advisor to a Labour government. Mm. You, know, I, you know, I had a great upbringing, but I didn't come from some amazing wealthy background. And I wanted to change the bloody world. And I got a chance to help great cabinet ministers to do that. And I did other stuff. You know, I worked in a charity, stuff outside and all the rest of it. But without doubt, the Labour Party has got to open up. And it's actually much harder now. I mean, if you think about, you know, the... the the amount of time it takes for selection processes or the meetings you have to go to if you're a if you work shifts or you care for your elderly mum and dad you've got no bloody shot at being going along to all those meetings and ending up being an mp and we've got to change that or all the money that's involved in it so yes we have to change it but the real reason people are fed up with politics and politicians is they think they don't talk normally and you know it's all a sort of rant and I think the last five years or more, we've sort of sounded, we're always moaning about how crap everything is and how wrong everybody else is. And in the end, people don't want to listen to that. I completely agree. Um, but I, I just, there is a reaction, isn't there, against a sort of style of politics. Like how do people like yourself, who are former special advisors, who are talented and passionate, separate yourself from others and you're not necessarily the person that people think of actually people I think people think of people like Ed Miliband and Yvette Cooper more in that regard um, as the sort of fo- you know the former advisors who then drift into sort of senior positions and, and they see that in a negative way firstly why has sort of professional politics never defended itself in the way that you have then because I think that, that's the strongest argument you often see people other leadership candidates say no almost apologizing for Jobs they've done in the past, which is quite frustrating. They need to be outside the Westminster bubble. Yeah, I um, hate that phrase. But it's, it, when you hear a politician, we do you have to say um, that we believe in politics and democracy. That yeah. it is about changing the world. I don't believe people. Pretty actually, from all of the political parties, go in because they believe in giving something back and and changing the world. Um, and we should defend it. Why, why slag off the thing that you're doing? Why would anyone vote for it or support it? It just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. And I'm proud of being a Labour politician. 
I never imagined that I would do this, and I'm bloody proud. What Corbyn represents, though, isn't it, is, a, is a sort of, it, it, not just an ideological change, but a sort of stylized change. I mean, do you think, obviously there, there needs to be a sort of refreshment in ideas. Do you think there has to be a, a, a learn from Corbyn in some regard about the way politics is conducted? That it maybe does fit, need to feel less shiny or less produced? Or is, uh, uh, would that be the wrong lesson to learn from it? Do you mean in terms of how he speaks or how he looks? or? Yeah, sort of culturally, you know, the sort of... Well, I've never knowingly been underdressed since uh, I was trying to get into nightclubs in Watford in the 80s <laughs> under age. So, um, uh, yeah, why did I say that? Uh, you have to be, what people want is for you to be your, yourself. Yeah. And wh- how you look and what you say... Um, has got to be true to who you are. And it is true that people try and say, mm, well, maybe you shouldn't look like that, maybe you shouldn't say this. And you need t- t- a strength of character and enough good friends and family who've got nothing to do with politics who tell you not to get up yourself. <laughs> Have you ever had, I mean, during the leadership election, were there any bits of advice that you absolutely refused to take? <laughs> Um, yeah uh, I'm trying to think what I'd say here I mean there were a whole bunch of things that I said that I you know believed in I mean it was more policy issues that I said I do believe we should spend 2% of our GDP on defence I'm never going to say that we're going to shut a successful school whether it's a free school or academy I'm not going to go out there and say that Um, and uh, I do believe uh, that we, as a country, need to um, be strong on the economy and balance the books and live within our means. And there were a number of discussions about whether these are the right things to say or do or not. Um, and I thought, well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to say it, so I did. I mean, what, what's so striking about this is, that just sounds so eminently sensible. Uh, and and the, to the country, people would say, yeah, almost of course. I mean, the defence thing, maybe people might. But the other things, almost certainly, and I would say even in including defence, people would. I mean, it's almost like the Labour Party is a, an alternate reality. But we, we hadn't been making those... Um, I mean, what I wanted to do, for example, on the, on the schools thing to say is how have we ended up in a situation where the Tories define with your, your care about education as about you've got... To, you know, it's all a debate with the media. Do you support free schools or academies or not? You know, let's get past that. If it's a successful school, right, we've got to make sure that the real is great teachers, an amazing curriculum, a proper system for making sure places are allocated. And you want to try and spring out of that and focus on what you want to focus on, not where the Tories want to stick you in order to give you a kicking. Um, But we hadn't made those arguments for the past five years, and so it was difficult to persuade people that that was a sensible way to go forward. I mean, not making arguments for five years sort of almost became the theme of Labour's election campaign, and it was uh, <laughs> it was embodied in that moment. I think it was question time where Ed Miliband was asked if he thought Labour had overspent, and he said no, and it sort of drew theatrical gasps. It wasn't necessarily that people thought he didn't think that. It was that for five years, 
he'd been saying almost the opposite. I mean, when you saw that clip, what was your reaction? It just said to me, we straight away after the 2010 election, the Tories piled in and blamed the whole of the crash on us. We're in the middle of a leadership contest. And I don't... The result of that was actually to sort of distance ourselves from where we were in government instead of getting out there and giving the Tories a bloody kicking and defending what we've done. And I think so close to the, you know, to the 2010 election when we've been in government, if you don't defend what you did in government, no other bugger is going to do it. <laughs> so, um, you know, of course we got things wrong, but it was a culmination of a whole bunch of things over five years where people looked at us and because we wouldn't say the word cuts, we wouldn't set out any oh. alternative. <laughs> What's the word that you're okay. going to say? Sorry. Um, no, I never used that. Um, people just didn't trust us on the economy and whatever the debate is about whether we'd... You know, we obviously didn't cause the crash, but had we spent too much before or not, we lost that argument. So it didn't matter what Ed said by that point. They didn't trust us. They wouldn't believe us. And the argument was lost. I mean, the, the way in which... It's not a surprise to me, but just the way in which the Labour Party leadership was framed and the way that you were treated by certain sections of, of the left, people might actually bizarrely be surprised to hear you so impassioned about fighting the Tories. I mean... You were effectively called a Tory by elements of the Labour Party when you spent your yes. whole life fighting. How did that make you feel? Uh, it didn't bother me because I know it's obviously not true. What I felt was that this whole... Um, you know, it, it did sort of start under Blair where people were sort of, oh, he's, he's not really Labour, is he? He's not really Labour. And then if you then sort of distance yourself from the last government uh, and then in during the leadership contest, I remember, you know, there was a whole thing about we don't have to swallow the Tory manifesto whole. So I'd gone from being new Labour to actually being a Tory within the space of, you know, and people didn't know me. They hadn't seen me. They didn't know I'd been a member of this party and worked my butt off with everybody else for all of those years and that you know what makes me more angry than anything is this sense of entitlement that the Tories have and that somehow you know if you just pull yourself up by your own boots everything will be fine and you look at those kids you know kids in my constituency who start school at three and a half already 15 to 20 months behind where they should be in terms of their development and they play catch up for the rest of their lives um and that's why I'm in this, about this great sense of unfairness. So what was the question? What did it make me feel? Uh, <laughs> yeah. How did it feel like to be called a Tory? Um, or a red Tory? Uh, you whatever. know what I thought? Well, this if you believe that being trusted on the economy, on welfare, uh, if you think that anybody who cares about that is a Tory, you will be out of power forever and you won't ever get sure start, minimum wage, maternity and paternity pay and leave you know, saving the NHS, you won't get it. Because if you think people who care about those issues and you call them Tories, we'll be out of power forever. So you're the one with the problem. <laughs> I mean, we sort of touched on it earlier, some of the things you got called uh, and the, the way in which you were treated. I mean, more than, far more than Yvette, there was a focus on what you wore and the fact that you didn't have children and even your weight at one yes, point. Yes, I mean, that must have been difficult to deal with. 
Um, well, when the uh, it was the Mail on Sunday journalist who asked me my weight, and I did just tell him to f off, and then I suddenly thought, oh God, this is about this. My mum will be really upset that I've sworn that she doesn't, you know, obviously wouldn't like me swearing. Um, I think it's so far behind where, but politics is so far behind where the real world is. You know, so one in four women in their forties now don't have kids for whatever reason. Um, and but politics doesn't just sort of reflect that. And then there was this awful thing on the front of the New Statesman about sort of childless women in politics, um, as if we're some sort of strange specimen when there's loads of people I know like that. And it just thought it's so far behind. Politics is really slow in keeping up with with where the world is. You know, I remember all you know, whether it was on the when we were putting forward the smoking ban. Oh, everyone's going to hate it, actually. Most people were way ahead of the politicians. Uh, when we were doing civil partnerships with gay men, oh, it's going to be really controversial. No, it wasn't in the end. It was amongst a few people, but not. And we're really slow. Politics is slow compared to how society changes. So uh, I just thought you're slow and thick. <laughs> what? So when... I mean, I'm just trying to sort of picture the scene. Did he ring you up and ask oh, you? Oh, no, he was in the office. He was asking me where I'd got all my clothes from, where I, my shoes, my, well, everything. Yeah. And, uh, and how much I weigh. And then he just asked me, and how much do you weigh? He just straight yeah, up, looked in the eye, and he just goes, okay, so where'd you get your clothes and your where, where, No, where's your shoes, where's your yeah. jacket, where's your top, and how much do you weigh? And you said... I, fuck off, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> um, did he sort of um, was he embarrassed did he say oh god sorry uh, I crossed the line no 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 of course he wasn't no. and he just sort of what just carried on asking you yeah alright then let's see you later bye thank you was it just sort of still, still, still and then I think shit? I gave him a jar of marmalade <laughs> yeah. yeah why why marmalade I don't know, I had some marmalade jars. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, I mean, you know, Corbyn uh, takes us as a drain cover, so you were sort of jamming. No, actually, so, if somebody had given me three jars of marmalade and I thought, I'll never eat all of those. Uh, do you want them? Yeah, that's what I did. Well, it was very <laughs> graceful to treat someone I, I think you, I, I hope to always be nice to people, no matter what they're like. So, when you, you know, we talked about the Twitter reviews and things like that, and you, you retweeted <laughs> Are there ever any that cut through where you go, oh, that hurts? No. Do you, do you laugh about them? Yes. <laughs> absolutely. I really do laugh about them. Are there any that stick out particularly funny? No, as I said, Poxhall was my, one of my favourite ones. Uh, what is that? So Poxhall? A, a pox. pox as as in, like chicken pox or small pox? Yeah, I think, as I said, I think it's like a medieval insult. <laughs> we go, I mean, and I thought, yeah. I thought maybe I'd look up a few more medieval <laughs> insults. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Because for a lot of people, they struggle to deal with that element of it. The, yeah. the, I think for a lot of politicians and, and for a lot of individuals, that level of abuse, I would hope that most people are completely shocked that anyone would get that level of abuse. Is there a fear that... It's almost with phone hacking, you know, when it was celebrities and politicians, don't really give a shit. And then the moment that it was Billy Dowler's phone that was hacked, people went, oh, God, this is awful... With this sort of level of abuse that we're, we're seeing, do you think it will take a well, sort of high-profile 
normal person to be such a catastrophic victim of it that people go, actually, this has to stop completely? Yes, I mean, there is, well, you, lots of people here will be on, on Twitter. I think some people, they just, they don't think somehow people are going to see it or read it. And as I said, the only reason that I retweet is I think there are people who are worried about saying and doing things on social media now because they think they'll get a heap of abuse. And that makes my blood boil because no one is ever going to tell me that I can't say or think something and I want to do whatever I can say. It's all right to say that you say what you believe. Are you ever tempted to reply to the tweets and go, let me tell you something, mate? Or tell me about off or anything like that? No. No. Uh, no, I'm, I'm never tempted to do that. I just think I'll retweet them and hopefully they will get a lot of abuse from other people. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the sort of classic new Labour approach, isn't it? <laughs> you're not going to let, you're not going to get involved, but by all means, let the market, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let the market intervene where they can <laughs> sort these people out. Um, I do wonder sort of where, whether new Labour is, uh, probably is now officially dead. I mean, I know it's had its death now numerous times, but it, it probably is dead now. What is the future for Blairism, or whatever you call it now? And what what should it be called from now? If you believe in the mindset, and it was, you know, Prescott who said this is, you know, our enduring values in a modern setting, you take your principles and you apply them to the world as you you see it. That's why I often think, I mean, funnily enough, if you were, uh, you know, someone who comes from the kind of Corbyn or left-wing bit of the party and you believe in nationalisation in today's world, you'd be nationalising Google, wouldn't you? I mean, that's what you'd be doing. Yeah. Uh, for the... for the, Well, you would. The means of production. That's, you know... I think that we have to look at how the world has changed and apply our beliefs to that world as it is and not and the problems of the future. And that's what we've got to do. That's what any sensible party But do. It, it feels like, uh, you know, the sort of word Blairism is tainted, isn't it? So what what should... Is it moderate? Is it is it progressives? Is there a sort of new word that doesn't... I mean, honestly, the, the trouble with this is it's all a shorthand for people in the party. Nobody in the country knows what a moderate or a... Well, they know what a moderate person is, but a progressive, they don't know. Yeah. For me, it is about... It is about a mindset of understanding how the world has changed. And I think the problem for the progressive bit of the party is we, we sort of got a bit stuck in the, you know, 90s and noughties. Not, and we were, we were too era, slow. Though. Yeah, it was a great era. With music and football and all that. And election victories. And, election victories. Yeah, and all that, yeah. Greg's went truly national. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heavy days back then. But I, wonder, but maybe it's... I preferred the 80s with perms. Perms, that's what I'm, that's Did you have a permanent? Oh, I had a massive permanent. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I mean, I, yeah, the eighties, eighties, eighties music was more my thing. Than the 90s. Do you have a? Is there a struggle with a politician and, and someone who's as modern as yourself to decide? As modern. Well, you're a very modern politician, I'd say. Right. Okay. Would you disagree? No, I've just no one's called me modern ever. Well, I would say you're very. Very modern. Um, um, do, you, do you have to sort of be careful about what bits to show to the public in terms of your personality? I'm not sure when this is no, going. But, but all I've when you said. <laughs> 
But you know, the moment you said a picture of a poem, I was like, why didn't you release a picture of you with a poem? Because people would go, I was like that in the 80s, I looked... Yeah, (laughs) that that wouldn't have dealt with my problem uh, (laughs) in the leadership campaign. But do you just as as a do you want me to to send you a picture of me with my perm? Is that what you're saying? It's not quite where I was going. But um, 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 you know, you you have to be careful, don't you? You do intrusive media. You do. So my only thing was I wouldn't talk about my private life. Okay. I, I had to talk about my parents and my upbringing and where I grew up and how I grew up and why I'm like I am because, it, you know, my parents and where I grew up is, is why I'm in politics and why I'm the type of politician that I am. I mean, I am Labour through and through, but I, I didn't grow up in a Labour family. My dad's Labour now. He... He was a member in the 80s, uh, left, sorry, 70s, left us in the 80s, rejoined when Tony Blair became leader now, but he was a Lib Dem councillor for many years. Yeah, he was, in the area where I grew up, which was totally Tory, there was no way anyone was ever going to vote Labour in the the kind of village I grew up, and so, uh, so I didn't grow up hating people who voted for different parties um you know some of my best friends have voted and still do vote Tory and I felt I was a person (laughs) who was able to reach out to them because that's where I grew up so I knew I was going to talk about my family and what they'd done but I was not going to talk about uh my private life because um it's nobody's business well, I completely agree, but obviously Chucker pulled out of the race because he said he didn't like the intrusion. I mean, was and I just presumed that if he was getting intrusion into his life, the other candidates must be going through that as well. I mean, did you have old school friends ringing you up saying, I've just had the son on the phone? Was no. it that sort of level? No. So it wasn't... It, it, did it no, feel I like didn't. I didn't. I, my, I think my parents got a call from their local newspaper in Sussex. Um, or maybe the Watford Observer might have rung them. <laughs> Um, but they didn't get anything from any national papers. None of my school friends did. No. That's just quite reassuring. Yeah, yeah but it... Um, oh, no, I, I would imagine that if I'd done any better, uh, there'd have been a lot more interest. It's sort of quite interesting. I would love to hear that. You know, people always moan about the male and the sun... Uh, and, the, and the Watford Observer, <laughs> the shameless face. Of the no, no, they didn't get any of that. Um, you sound a bit disappointed in. Well, I just sort of that. wrongly presumed that everyone was put through hell by the press, and I, I, I suppose in an odd way, I'm, I'm relieved that that wasn't the case. At that at that stage, yeah, no, I wasn't. So, in terms of the future now, would you consider standing for the Leeds again? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't um, think of anything further from my mind or probably most Labour Party members' minds. So, uh... There's not a part of you that thinks, you know what, if no one else stands up in five years' time or, you know, five months' time? Or... No, I, um, I feel I, I, I will continue to play my part, but um, we have got... I think part of our problem is we're always thinking about the person... And we haven't spent enough time thinking about the, the what and the ideas, and I want to play my role in, in that. That's where I want to contribute. And I'm, um, you know, on the EU referendum as well. 
So amongst Labour MPs at the moment, because all these things about PLP meetings being stormy and Emily Thornberry getting heckled and Jeremy Corbyn getting heckled, I mean, I presume you go to these meetings. Yes, I do. Are they as uh, HD as they're made out to be? Yes. And what... Because so, I went into committee room 14, uh, another Labour MP took me in, and it, this is where all these PLP meetings happen where the leadership gets heckled. And there's a top table, isn't there, that looks down on... Rows of yeah. benches that face each other. It's like a sort of mini house of commons. Yeah, and then the rows at the back as well. And Packed. Just, uh, but with tables in front of them that they sort of bang when someone has a go at Corbyn, presumably. And uh, <laughs> it's just sort of being in there. You sort Chew, of doing Hillary Ben. <laughs> um, it, when you're in there and it's... I mean, does it get very rowdy? Um, I mean, yes, there have been more... I mean, I've been an MP for, you know, five years... And it wasn't like that over the last five years. It's, it's definitely different. There's a lot of people raising issues. And is that is that a good thing? Um, look, it would be it would be better if everybody was in a sort of lather of unity and agreement. Um, but people feel feel very strongly about a whole range of issues and. They raise it. Now, you'll think, having said, people want politicians who speak the truth and honestly. I've, I've never briefed about what happens in a PLP meeting, and I'm so sorry, but I'm not going to do it here. But people do say what they care about, and I think that that's important. Um, and I'll just... Do you want to be in there, don't I you? do, I do, I do, Take I do. I do. How can I get in? <laughs> you could be, be my spad for a day. Would, would that actually be possible? Yeah. Can, can, can I do that, please? <laughs> 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 immediately, it was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll go to the meeting. Um, that would just be, I've always, wanted, I've always wanted to just be in there and just watch it kick off. I mean, there is a sort of bizarre, almost like football hooligan element of it where you go, oh, it's awful, they're, they're so passionate, but I've got my ticket on Saturday. I'll be there early. You know, is there a sort of sense of MPs going to watch a bit of a dust down? No, nobody wants to be in this situation. Nobody. This is not a thrilling, exciting, wonderful situation. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's fun watching people argue, isn't it? <laughs> but I, I don't want to sound, uh, you know, pious here, <laughs> but, um, you know, we will... What is awful is sitting opposite the Tories, and you see them there, and they are all very happy, they're cock-a-hoop, I mean, they're having difficulties with Europe at the moment but I look I look at the MPs and I know which of our bloody amazing candidates they have beaten and I know our our candidates who should have been there and they sit there they haven't got the Lib Dems, they're smug they're entitled, they're doing whatever the bloody hell they want we can't beat them on stuff and I do not want us to be in, in, in you know internal turmoil you know, and what I don't want is, you know, the pity you get from Tory MPs. And I think, I don't want your pity, I want your bloody job. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm not going to give up on that. So what sort of pity do they say? What about the... Oh, it's terrible, isn't it, at the moment? And I think, you know, I am so determined that you are not going to be this crap minister, uh, you know, in five years' time. Yeah. Are, are there any Tory MPs you get on with? Uh, any Labour MPs you gone with? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, lots. Are there 
Karen and Toria, I think. Um, Sarah Wollaston, who chairs the Health Select Committee, is quite good. Yeah. Um, I think she's, you know, prepared to speak her mind. Um, but I don't spend a lot of time with Toria and Pace. No, understandably not. Let's <laughs> um, suppose given that uh, uh, sentiments. Um, right, we'll, we'll take some questions uh, from the floor. We've got a roving mic, so if we could just have the house lights up a bit and uh, indicate clearly with uh, uh, an arm in the air. And if we could ask for succinct questions and succinct answers. Um, yes, yeah, so let's start with the chap at the back and we'll, we'll sort of try and move across geographically. And let us know your name as well. Is your mic... Uh, is this, is this? Oh, sorry. It's all right. Hi. Uh, Jack, um... Here. Hey. Oh, hello. All right. <laughs> when do we get rid of Corbyn? <laughs> At what point? Um, I don't think that's on the agenda. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> it might be on some people's agenda, though. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, is that working now? I don't seem to be doing this very well. Technical Does that sound okay? No. No, it's a bit scratchy. Sorry. Maybe just sort of hold it. Okay. Um, look, I don't think that that is, you know, that's not on the agenda. We've, I know a lot of, you know, there's a lot of gossip and people talk about all of this stuff, but, um, you know, he won this overwhelming vote. And I'm sorry, where, where I'm looking in the wrong place. I do apologise. Um, he won this overwhelming vote. And unless we've, you know, we, you know, in the moderate bit of the party can make a strong set of cases and issues, you get the same result. Okay, any more questions? Oh, that was a very strong oh, hand up. Hello. Yeah, yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, the, the mic's come in. And let's make. Here we are. It's for the podcast, so that everyone at home can hear as well. Given the change in the uh, Labour Party membership, um, what's life like in your constituency, Labour Party? Has it changed for you? I mean, not. Not a massive amount. I mean, we've sort of um, doubled our number of members. But a lot of them don't oh, come to no. <laughs> okay, no. So I did have. I've got. I had. Um, this will be a. You know, I had a. There's a couple of XSWP. Um, a couple of. You know, people who really love Jeremy because they find him inspiring, but they love him because, as one woman said to me, he doesn't care whether what he says wins or lo loses him votes. They like that about him but most of them so far haven't been very active and you know are door knocking or anything yet but you know it's different in different parts of the country and you know they sort of know what they're getting with me <laughs> and I've made a big effort to try and get to know people and try and you know you always try and find what's in, what you've got in common with someone you don't start off with your massive divisions because you're not going to get on with anybody like that okay any more uh, yes, over there. Hello, I'm Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Um, and I think if anyone asks you how much you weigh, you should tell them what you did at university and what your result was. That would have been a much more sensible approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Anyway, um, whilst it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you discuss the Labour Party are very insightful. We're at a huge crossroads in terms of international politics. Yeah. And, you know, what's happening in the primaries, the Brexit, the this, the that, yeah. Syria. 
and I'm kind of quite annoyed, Matthew, that none of that's been discussed. Uh, well, you can discuss it now. Yeah, so... <laughs> I, I will do. I, um, I'm not the one being interviewed. No, no, no but you, you, you've asked questions that are quite insular. I found. Well, I mean, you are right to raise the... For me, the biggest issue we face of our generation is our membership. I'm helping you out here. Is our membership of the EU? Talking about the Labour Party, yes, fascinating. Your insights, yes, fascinating. But... What's your main motivation for... Um, whatever you want to say about the referendum, what are you going to say and what are you going to feel about that, what's happening in the primaries, those things to me are much more powerful and much more scary than discussing what has happened in the Labour Party. Well, um, I'm, I'm, be, I'm the East Midlands Labour European champion. I'm going to be leading our campaign there and uh, I do think it is the biggest question that our country will face in a generation and whilst the media is obsessed about at the moment the splits with you know Boris and Gove and um, actually I think this has been terrible for Boris Johnson he has revealed himself to be the purely self-centered you know it's really bad for him good Um, (laughs) um, but this I think is an opportunity for us uh, a massive opportunity for us as a party. We have got to make sure, though, that it isn't just seen as a debate between you know, elite politicians. We're going to make a massive effort within the Labour In for Britain campaign to get uh, everyone, from whether it's your local businesses to universities, students, green and climate change groups, we've got to do this differently because if it is just seen as a few, it's great that big businesses want us to remain part of the EU, and we need, you know, the leaders of all of the parties to make it be making the case. But if it's that alone, I, I really worry about it. But I would urge everybody here who wants to, to get involved, let me know because we desperately need your help. Okay. Anyone else on that side of the room that had a, a question? Yes, the chap at the back. It's very hot in here. It's very hot. Um, I can't think of anything more depressing that I've seen in the last six months in British politics than what's happened to the Labour Party. Is, is there genuinely a way back from this? If you, if you look back to, to what happened in the, the 90s and the early 2000s, what Labour did for politics in that sense, and bringing everything to the centre, is there, is there genuinely a way back now? Sorry, can, can we just have some questions on Europe, please? Sorry, uh, sorry. Just... <laughs> Guys. I've, I've, just, I've just got one really insular question, which I apologise this provincial <laughs> continental politics. There is hope. There is a way back, and don't give up. I mean, as I said, you know, imagine back if you, in you know, 1982, 1983, the election result, then the split within the Labour Party. We came back. I'm not gonna. I don't want to wait that bloody long, but of course there is. But that means stick with it. You know, stick with the party. Have the guts to have the debate. Group together. You know, and I think we can do it. So the briefings at the moment are that McDonald's going to take over when Corbyn goes, so that must be even more depressing for people in the middle of the party. Well, look, no one can take over. They have to be elected and voted, but we've got to get... We've got to persuade enough people 
that there is an inspiring and credible alternative. We've got to get new people to join the party. Um, and it's possible. I mean, you, can't, you cannot be... If you just think it's all... I mean, I know it's really hard and awful for many people and many members of the Labour Party or people who have left, but we've done it before and we can do it again. I wish you good luck. Thanks. OK, are there any questions on the balcony? Any on the balcony? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, Tim's just going to run up uh, and catch you. Uh, there he is. He's, he's there in the middle at the back row. Back row in the middle. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Hello. Hello. Hello, mate. You've talked a good game about staying in and keeping on the fight, but what I would like to know is, do you think Jeremy Corbyn would make a better Prime Minister than David Cameron? I will always campaign for a Labour leader and Labour Prime Minister. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good! Like an instant Amazon review. Very good, four stars. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get asked that question often? No, it's the first time. I've been waiting for that. <laughs> right, OK, one last question. Anyone else on that, uh, on the uh, balcony that would... Did you have your hand up there? OK, right, the microphone's now got to come downstairs. To... <laughs> I'll tell you what, you shout it out and I'll repeat it because it's for the podcast. I was just wondering who the most talented politician of your lifetime, in your opinion, is. I'm not just talking UK, but worldwide. Who's the most talented politician ever, worldwide, in your opinion? McCarvey. <laughs> He's still there. That's a really good question. I've never really thought about who is that. There's no... I don't have a sort of, this is my hero or heroine. Um, to be honest, you look at... Well, you know, I was always a massive Bill Clinton fan, I have to say. I mean, but because of the way that he... Uh, you know, you think about just how divided and vicious politics is in... Um, America now and he did seem to kind of more bridge the divide and uh, and was a sounds awful a thinker as well as a doer you know what I mean um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I know what you mean yeah um, if you had to choose one from British history though who would you pick uh, you know I was a um, I think we had clearly big problems towards the end, but I was a, um, you know, I was a huge supporter of Tony Blair's. I think he did amazing things. Um, I yeah. Friend of the show, friend of the show. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I was also, you know, I'm also a huge, I was a huge admirer of Barbara Castles as well. I thought she was a strong woman in a... Um, She's slightly harder to book. <laughs> but look at what she... she I mean, not, not only all the amazing things she did on uh, Equal Pay, but the, the difficulties she had with the unions of, um, and what she, the changes she was trying to press through there and that she was, a, you know, a woman in a man's world and all of those clichés. But she was also... I mean, I'd met her once and she was really feisty and amazing. And I admired her. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, before we go, uh, in March, the guest is Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, oh, the mog! <laughs> uh, April, Angus Robertson, the uh, Westminster leader of the Scottish National Party. Uh, no, that'll be interesting. 
People listen to him in the Commons. It's quite interesting. He's got authority, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, he does. Tim Farron, the leader of the Liberal Democrats in May. <laughs> and in June, it'll be a week after the European referendum, so we're going to book a special guest um, to, to deal with that. I think they're all sold out until May. June's the only one that's left on sale. Um, so uh, before we go, uh, can we just have a round of applause for all the stuff at the St. James's Theatre and at Avalon? And uh, uh, um, once again, just for being a fantastic audience, this show's been going just over three years now, and every single month you've all been superb. So this, if this is your first time, thank you for coming. I hope you come back. For the regulars, thank you very much. It's, uh, it, it's just a great night. I love interviewing politicians, and to be able to do it in a room full of uh, people who enjoy that, as, uh, hopefully as much or as, to some extent as much as I do. It's a, it's a great privilege. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, please, uh, one last time for our phenomenal guest tonight, Liz Kendall. Well, there you go, Liz Kendall. And I, I think uh, the, the one word that really comes through after, after listening back to that is, is, is strength and what, what strength of character uh, Liz possesses. And I'm sure you know this from, from watching politics, however closely you watch it. Strength is a rare quality um, at, at every level. And I've worked with politicians at every level of politics and observed them and advised them at, uh, at various levels. And very few can take pressure. I mean, it, because they're human beings. Um, and they react in the way that the rest of us do. They don't like it. Instinctively, they want to be under less pressure and will do anything quickly uh, to get out of it. Liz Kendall is someone who almost seems to thrive on it, or it certainly isn't crushed or um, belittled by it. It's just remarkable uh, character quality to have. And I thought that really came through. Um, the future uh, guests that I have coming up, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, Angus Robertson and Tim Farron, and at the end of June, an EU referendum special. I'm not sure if there are any tickets left uh, for April and May. I think the March one will have happened by the time this is uh, this goes out. But April, it's Angus Robertson, and May is Tim Farron. They are on the last Wednesdays of, of each respective month. I often get messages from people who um, can't get tickets. They sell out very, very quickly. So always... Check with the venue for returns, stjamestheatre.co.uk, or look them up on Twitter, because occasionally some people can't make it. I always try and retweet it so that people can see. Um, but you never know, you might get lucky nearer the date if you haven't been able to uh, get tickets before. But as always, thank you very much for downloading this. If you've been to the live shows, thank you very much. And um, just spread the word if you can. And if not, just thanks for downloading it, and I hope you've enjoyed it. So, see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.